Welcome, everybody. My guest today is the neuroscientist, contemplative, and poet Ruben Laukinen. I had such a delightful time talking to this amazing individual. We cover so many remarkable topics. What is the role of deconstruction on the meditative path and how do dreams fit in? We talk about meditation and the plasticity of the predictive mind. How it is that crisis sparks evolution. And then topics like naive realism, how space and time are constructs, non-contextual realism, representationalism, and how the meditative path is really kind of death in slow motion. Is it even accurate to talk about the mind? Or is minds more appropriate? We then turn to what's left after all this cutting, negating, and deconstructing. Are there, in fact, wholesome constructs? And how can lucid dreaming help us with things like generation stage meditation? You will quickly see, as I did, why Ruben is truly a shining star in this new and exciting field of contemplative science. Hey, welcome everybody to our ongoing My Club interview series, <clears throat> where I cannot tell you how excited I am to introduce you to my new guest. I'm uh, bursting with excitement to talk uh, with this remarkable individual, and I think you will see why shortly as we get into his remarkable mind. Um, so as usual, I'm going to read a little uh, brief official bio, and then we're just going to jump right in. So Ruben is a scientist, contemplative writer, speaker, kickboxer, and poet. He has authored the first unifying scientific theory of both meditation and insight. Ruben's mission is to know the mind in order to uncover simple and effective empirical paths towards peace. I wanted to read one last little thing. Ruben received his PhD from the University of Queensland in Australia winning the Research Excellence Award for his dissertation on insight experiences. He is now based at the VU University of Amsterdam as a postdoctoral fellow, researching the effects of advanced meditation practices on the mind and brain. With Professor Helene Litzlachter, how do you pronounce your name, Ruben? Slachter. Yeah, I was pretty close. Yeah. Using a combination of neuroimaging, machine learning, and phenomenology, Ruben is investigating some of the rarest states of consciousness, he has published articles in leading journals, regularly speaks at international conferences, consults for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, and has written on topics that range from artificial intelligence to psychedelics. Ruben has an eclectic contemplative background, including traditions such as Zen, Advaita, and Theravada. And he lives on a freaking houseboat. Okay, Ruben, just give us the little <laughs> tour here. So you're looking at Ruben's houseboat. Is this, I mean, how many people do you know that live on a houseboat? So give them the brief <laughs> tour like you did. I'm so jealous. Okay, I'll do my best to. I've got to lift my microphone at the same time. So you Yeah, sorry, some, sorry, but it's just so cool. Back here, but here you go. Show them, right? So here, look at that. That's his, that's his backyard. <laughs> like, how awesome is that? <laughs> I just love it. So I have to share a couple words about my, my new dear friend. I, I originally met Ruben at a, um, a wonderful event that's been going on for 11 years that I was invited to join this past year uh, called CONDS Cons, Consciousness, Non-Duality, and Science. And I heard Ruben uh, give a presentation a couple of months ago that I was deeply, deeply impressed. And I, I really felt like I had met a kind of kindred spirit because of his, um, just the eclectic nature of his life. And the fact that he's, not only an incredibly articulate 
thinker, um, researcher, and contemplative, but he's also a poet. And, and he shared, Ruben has shared generously some of his remarkable poetry, which really moves me. And so with my deep affiliation for the arts and music, his deep affiliation for poetry, and you know the kind of the rigor approach to the nature of mind, um, I felt like I've discovered a long lost brother. So Ruben, my dear friend, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you um, for an hour or so to talk about, I think some really cool topics. It's such a pleasure, Andrew, and I, I share your feeling um, when I've heard you speak at cons. It's uh, resonated deeply, and I also really appreciate your eclectic and um, I think on your website you said full-scale uh, living or something like that. Um, yeah, right. Uh, that, that resonates deeply with me, so it's such a yeah. pleasure to be here. Well, really, I, I've been looking forward to this for so long. Um, there's so much to talk about. I'm, I'm actually, I was, uh, we got on a little bit before we started recording and I said, Ruben, I want to pause for a second because I have so much excitement here about your work. I want to, I want to share it. I want to save it and share it with our listening audience here. And so I, I do want to seed a couple topics. Um, <clears throat> there's so much to talk about, but I wanted to start Ruben with actually what you share in, in your bio online here that Ruben's mission is to know the mind. And I, when I read that, I immediately thought of uh, a statement by a colleague, someone I'm sure you know well, um, John Kabat-Zinn, where he said this, it's the most beautiful thing in an interview with, I think it was Richie Davidson, where he said, if we know the mind fully, we get beauty, the arts, and all things wondrous. When we don't know the mind, we get Auschwitz. And so I thought that was like the most kind of beautiful and also gritty description of how important it is to know thyself, to really explore the nature of who we are and how it is that we um, construct this illusory thing called self, which is the brilliance of this most remarkable paper that Ruben has recently penned. The title of which is, don't be intimidated by the way, <clears throat> this paper is highly readable. Um, I, in fact, Ruben, when I read it, I couldn't put it down. It was like a novel. It was like, I have to finish this thing. It's, it was so insightful. And so for me, um, just the, the richest articulation of the cross-pollination between East and West, um, really just the best of this kind of integral approach to mind. And so the title of the paper is from many to N in parentheses, right? It's hard to kind of uh, <laughs> rephrase this, from many to one, or put the N in front of it, from many to none, meditation and the plasticity of the predictive mind. And in this paper, um, Ruben, you, you go into so many things that are so near and dear to my heart <clears throat> that I really wanted to spend time unpacking what I derived is some of the seminal insights in this indeed seminal paper. So first of all, congratulations on this work. And let's start with, uh, with your permission. Let's start with um, what I think is one of the most cogent summations. In fact, you presented this at the cons meeting in a slide that just kind of blew me away because it was so succinct where you said resting in the present moment is annihilation. And um, I want to start right in, into the essence of that, because in many ways, that's, you know, kind of the seed syllable upon which this entire paper um, is constructed. And so it, it paraphrased to, to <clears throat> the best of your ability, the essence of what you're trying to convey in this work. And then I want to get into the weeds. <clears throat> I want to get into the thick of it and explore some of the topics, <clears throat> excuse me, that really strike deeply um, 
into my heart and also connect for our listeners to the nocturnal meditations and how we can explore some of what Ruben is talking about using the, the nocturnal meditations altogether. So how does that start as a diving board? That sounds great, Andrew. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really happy to hear that it resonates. I mean, part of my um, goal with this paper was indeed to take into account as much as possible the lived experience of, of practitioners like yourself um, in sculpting a kind of um, a framework for looking at meditation that I hope um, can be understood a bit like a, I kind of visualize a fractal or mm. something like that, where it's um, at an intuitive level, it can be grasped. But then if you zoom deeply, you really get the specifics into something that I hope eventually is also computationally tractable. So something that's um, a really rigorous model as well. Um, okay, so what's what's the essence of the idea? And so you mentioned this, this um, one excerpt, which is that um, resting in the here and now is annihilation. So what I mean by that and what we are um, in a way communicating in this paper is that everything that we experience, be it sights, sounds, smells, or our thoughts, or our embodied experience, our sense of self, from the brain's uh, perspective, everything is built out of the currency of time, you could say. There is no experience without some projection of the past onto what we might call the neutral data that um, we, we, we suppose is coming in. So that is to say the electrical signals of our bodies um, and the impressions on the two-dimensional sheets of our senses, the light hitting our retina, the um, sound waves, all of this is, in a way, you could say, empty of meaning, not something phenomenologically experienceable without us impressing our past onto it to give it meaning, to build um, uh, a sufficiently coherent model that then allows us to uh, kind of act um, adaptively in the world. So this is kind of just a basic assumption about how the brain works. It has to construct experience away from the here and now by projecting from the past onto the neutral data of the senses. Now, what's kind of interesting about how the brain does this, according to our kind of best understanding at the moment, is that it does this hierarchically. It, it does so by building representations on top of representations on top of representations. Um, so to put this kind of simply, so if you take, for example, language, um, I mean, you can hear me speaking now and automatically you're um, experiencing the, the concepts, the words, the meaning behind them. Um, but really what's, what you're receiving is very a very simple sound stream. Um, and so uh, what the, the brain's task is to do very, very quickly is build a meaningful experience out of sound, which is built onto, um, combined into syllables, which is combined into words, into sentences, and to extract these, what we call temporal regularity. So regularities over time into a coherent experience, extract the meaning, and then also prepare oneself for responding. 
So this same process of hierarchically building an experience from sound to words to language to communication applies to all of our senses, all of our, all of our experience. So this is something that comes really from very, very mainstream um, neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience. But then, then the question is, what, well, what does meditation do to a system, to an organism who constructs their reality through hierarchical interpretation, hierarchical actually prediction? So this is something we can get into, which is predictive processing, but I can kind of skip over that for now. So what does meditation do to an um, organism that is um, uh, building the world hierarchically by projecting the past onto the present at deeper and deeper temporal timescales? Well, by being in the here and now, now it of course depends enormously on what kind of meditation technique you're engaging in. It's, this, is a, this is also um, an enormous caveat. But if you think of many of the meditation techniques that we um, use especially in, in, in Buddhism, you get this general tendency towards deconstruction. Or if you can, you can even put at the heart of it that there is this, this um, um, sense of going deeper and deeper towards the here and now. The here and now is, is somehow at the heart of, of many meditation techniques. And so in being in the here and now, you're by definition beginning to deconstruct this tendency to construct abstract hierarchic, hierarchically deep or temporally deep models in the brain and thereby stopping this, this um, habitual, highly automatic tendency to project the past onto the present. And so what this ought to do is gradually minimize conceptualization fundamentally simply by being in the here and now until, um, and this is what I think is, is maybe the insight is that being in the here and now goes much deeper than most people think. Mm -hmm. I think there's a... Mm -hmm. There's there's a sense that the here and now is um, you know our present sensory experience or something like that. But from the perspective of the brain, if you're going to be in the here and now, then there is actually no constrained experience that can be had. There is no no such experience as um, perceiving a thing as separate from other things because immediately that already demands some form of projection from the past to the present. There can be no self there. There can be no time because time is also um, uh, built up over uh, certain uh, experiences. So that's also a kind of uh, interpretation. Also, the sense of space is also a, a model um, in the system. So basically, everything we hold um, as our kind of immediate lived experience if you are to truly be in the here and now is, is inevitably going to fall away. Now in this paper, we describe this very carefully in terms of um, particular meditation practices and how the progression of um, uh, meditation in these ancient contemplative traditions and the, the progression of these meditation practices incidentally and beautifully maps onto the way that the brain constructs experience. Um, and so you see this almost one-to-one -one mapping that from, one, from how one begins meditation, for example, with a simple kind of focused breath meditation or something like that, all the way to um, some of the most profound kinds of um, advanced meditation techniques, um, such as non-dual practices, you see this really clear and coherent spectrum of deconstruction that maps on really well to the way that the brain constructs experience. Um, and so I think it, it's, 
it gives a great kind of logic to the practices. And it was for me also a kind of um, inspiring and serendipitous discovery that these two things map onto each other so, so well. So that's really um, uh, the short story. <laughs> Let's say even that was a was no, a bit no, no, it's, it's, that, no. It's not proposed. It's incredibly articulate. There's there's so much you're covering here, and so I, I just want to run a little bit of commentary. Several things that came to mind um, because I, I just I, I cannot tell you how even your examples, your wording, and everything are just so completely resonant with the way I've approached this this topic. And so several things came to mind here, Ruben. One is this really beautiful quote from one of my favorite authors, James Joyce, where. Um, he he says, you know, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. And in a certain way, that, that's a, a wonderful way to look at it. I also was deeply struck by your example of sound. Um, I use that regularly um, to show the, uh, really, on one level, for me, the lightning fast rapidity, the instantaneity of how quickly we project impute meaning onto sound. And so if I start talking in gibberish, uh, there we go. We, we deconstruct and, uh, rather quickly back into um, relatively neutral sound waves. And I like this because it's, a, uh, again, it shows just how rapidly, how efficiently the, the neurological systems work to co-create um, our realities moment to moment to moment. And so, um, also the notion that you're talking about representation on top of representation, you know, this whole notion, this fallacious notion of representationalism, the course, uh, correspondence theory of truth, the camera theory of perception that we have this, in your language, naive realism, that yes. there is a reality out there, you know, Ken Wilber, my friend talks about it as the myth of the given, that there is mm. this pre-existing um, reality that we plop into, we grow into. Well, I um, frequently say we don't go into it, we grow with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's so much to really unpack here. And, and what you also said, and I want to go right into the depth of this now, is that uh, resting in the present moment um, goes deep. Well, I want let, to let's let's plunge deep here because I think um, going through the three classic practices that you articulate in your paper: focused attention, shamatha, open monitoring, or in my languaging, open awareness to the full-blown non-dual meditations. It really is an increased refinement into um, the present moment. But I want to go a little bit deeper into this with you and see how this lands with you when you say, you know, uh, resting in the present moment is annihilation. I would argue both doctrinally and experientially that, that we can go so deep into the present moment that we annihilate even the present moment, where mm -hmm. the present moment itself is then discovered to be itself illusory, um, a construct. And as you know, Einstein even said, space-time are constructs. They're not, it's not this passive fabric upon which we live our, we live our lives. It's actually a construct co-enacted, co-emerged at the same time we create this sense of ego. Ego creates, self-sense creates the matrix of space and time. And so to me, um, this is what Papasambhava talked about is the fourth moment. When you go so deeply into the present moment, in fact, on one level, Ruben, Kempo Karkar Rinpoche, this is not that easy. It's not that difficult to see. You know, the future doesn't exist. We, we can agree on that. The past doesn't exist. We can agree on that. Well, what's the present? Well, it's an imaginary line drawn between two non-existence. It too mm -hmm. fundamentally has no inherent reality, but yet we still need to use the present moment as a conduit into the fourth moment. 
the moment beyond the, the other three, Turiya, beyond mm. past, present, and future. And so I play with this. I'm, I'm a Gemini. Somebody once told me that Geminis like to play with words. I guess that's me. But I, I sometimes playfully talk about this. Is if you go into now, here, so deeply, it becomes nowhere. Um, mm. And so let's talk about how it, when we go, this is jumping all the way perhaps to the, to the fruition of the non-dual practices. By going so deeply into the present moment, we even annihilate the present moment itself. Mm. Um, and we're left with... Um, Tatata, you know, suchness, dharmaka, isn't this, that. And what that is, is what I want to go to after this little section. Like, what is that? Um, what mm -hmm. my friend, last comment here is what my dear friend, uh, Lama Surya Das says, he, he refers to it as Buddha standard time, Buddha standard time, right? <laughs> the time, the time <laughs> zone that transcends is pre-temporal, pre-spatial. Um, mm -hmm. And what that is, is maybe something we can segue into. But let's, let's, uh, I'm curious how that lands with you, both with your research and in your own experience, because what makes you unique as a contemplative scientist is you also, uh, so to speak, walk the talk, right? In this case, you could say you sit the talk, right? You, you <laughs> sit on the cushion and you unfold these into your direct yogic valid cognition. So let's run with this a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I would just mirror that back exactly what you said, which is indeed from, from the brain's perspective, another way of saying that the here and now is annihilation is that there is no such thing as the present moment. Yeah. Because what we usually take to be the construct for the present moment is perhaps something like the perceptual bubble of our experience and the kind of um, sensory happenings there, also perhaps the sense of our body um, and very sort of minimal versions of our of ourselves. This might be what we take to be the body or even just the experience of the breath. When we say focus on the present moment, we say focus on the breath. Now with that, for instance, there's already several assumptions and several constructs that the, the brain or, or the organism through its inactive processes has had to um, create. And the first is, uh, well, they all come together, but there's the breath. Then there's the one that's attending to the breath. And then there's the sense of attention. And all of these things are predictions, are, are creations from, um, uh, from the organism and the brain and the, the processes therein. And so what we actually think about as the present moment already, there is multiple constructs, multiple beliefs, multiple actions, multiple doings um, are built into that. So indeed, if you think about meditation as the most sort of, this is sort of just one way to think about it, the most sort of profound non-doing, mm. a complete undoing, complete non-doing, then you also, then one must also release this doing of attention, the doing of the idea of, for instance, the breath, the doing of the idea of one who is meditating. So all of these are still constructed aspects of experience from the perspective of, of biology, but also, as you say, this is something that can be seen directly through through meditation. So these things um, map on really well. And, and when I speak to people who are very advanced meditators, and to some extent from my own experience, you, you do see that exactly this is the way that we, we would expect these things to be constructed and experience in terms of the, the, the brain and the mind. That is also the way that it corresponds to our phenomenology as they're, as they're deconstructed. And Which so, you would, of course, it's just a sanity check, but it's, a, it's good that those two things seem to correlate well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this also, this ties in, um, I, I just want to kind of uh, somewhat recontextualize this for our listeners in terms of the, the 
progression and the trajectory of these nocturnal meditations. And so Ruben, in, in my kind of mapping or cartography of the exploration of mind, what, one of the, this is my uh, term, uh, neologism, uh, nocturnal meditations, where nocturnal is a, basically a code word for subtle. And so in my mapping of this, there are five of these practices. Um, uh, the first one is liminal dreaming, which uh, I guess more classically is called hypnagogic, hippopompic, you know, that kind of pre and post phase, which is actually a very interesting dimension that people usually hopscotch over to go to the goodies of like lucid dreaming. I, I just want to say a brief word about that. Um, I find liminal dreaming to be particularly rich because unlike the dream state where usually um, the egoic narrative is, is back online, more or less. There's, even though it's not articulate, there is a relative sense, sense, a self sense in the dream. I'm experiencing this. Well, in the liminal space, we can actually watch that deconstruction um, and that narrative actually come undone. And so liminal spaces and liminal beings, in a certain sense, you're a liminal being, situations, places, Bardo-like experiences that don't fit. And this is a really, with, with you know, correct observational intent, Liminal dreaming becomes a very, very interesting way, in fact, to watch with a really sensitive lens of the mind, how it is in fact, the, the self actually comes undone. In fact, if it didn't, we wouldn't fall asleep, right? That's one definition yeah. of insomnia. So just briefly, so with liminal dreaming, that progresses then matures into lucid dreaming, progresses into dream yoga, progresses into sleep yoga, luminosity yoga, progresses into bardo yoga, a fundamental narrative along those five is, is the kind of Hegelian transcend but include, where each succeeding practice transcends but includes its predecessor. And so therefore, in a very real way, what we're talking about here, I want to just recontextualize this for our listeners, is we're shooting all the way to the top. We're talking about bardo yoga. Um, bardo yoga transcends but includes all five. And by this, what I mean is that in, in a very real way, as far as I've been able to determine it for decades, is the spiritual path in particular, and meditation, in, I should say the spiritual path in general and meditation in particular, is really kind of death in slow motion. It's a way to titrate, in other words, on our terms, to drip this process of de-reification, this process of, of, of death and dying. And this has colossal implications. I mean, one of which um, is, is the following, that you know, if we can discover now um, <clears throat> the illusory nature of the, uh, the delineated ego self, the problem of life and death is solved. And so as my friend David Loy says, such is the Buddhist goal to discover that which cannot die because it was never born. And so understanding this, like what we're talking about here goes really deep. I mean, it is actually a way um, to go all the way to the top to uh, fundamentally reveal the death of death, that death is an illusion, that it's fundamentally itself a construct and so by deconstructing now, dying now on our terms, according to the wisdom traditions that I, as I've come to understand them, we can actually um, penetrate through the illusory nature of death itself and realize that this, this fundamental continuum, and this is now we're hopscotching all the way um, <clears throat> into the domain of the true non-dual traditions, um, understanding and discovering this dimension of mind that actually is not subject to the ravages, the vicissitudes of space and time, old age, sickness and death, deconstructing all the way down to that which cannot be deconstructed because it was never constructed, the very fabric of formless awareness itself. And so this is where I, I, I wanna take the conversation if you're okay with it for just a few minutes to see how mm -hmm. that resonates with you. Um, I know as, as a scientist, sometimes, um, and I asked this question to my dear friend, Richie Davidson, 
Um, and he, his answer was wonderfully agnostic. He said, I don't know where I asked him. I said, Richie, you know, if, if, if I'm pinning you in the corner, um, are you comfortable telling me that, that mind equals brain? And he said, Andrew, I said, I just, I don't know. Um, I'm agnostic on that. So I'm asking you a, a number. I'm throwing a couple of noodles against the wall here, Ruben. I'm wondering how they're landing with you. Um, are you able to maybe starting at the end, um, make the proclamation that mind is in fact reducible to brain or are your models and, and understandings both experientially and through your research allowing you the opportunity that perhaps in fact that is um, that reductionism is, is slightly facile and mm. delicious. Well, deep stuff. Um, <laughs> are you okay going here? Let's, yeah, yeah, let's, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what we're here for. This is, this is what it's all about, you know? Um, well, is mind reducible to brain? Well, I, I would say depends what you mean by mind. Um, but even if you take but actually any definition of mind, by my view, it's not reducible to the brain. But my answer to why might be somewhat um, different than you would usually hear. And um, that's because I don't think a brain in a vat does very much at all. Um, if you, you take this organ, which we've reified into an object, into a thing which happens to have certain boundaries within the skull and to, related to our nervous system, which we've kind of cut out from the rest of the body and chose to really uh, investigate as a separate entity. If you take that separate entity and you put it in a room with no input, no body, no action, no input from the world, you're, not much is going to happen. Mm. So I, I don't think the mind is reducible to the brain. I don't think, uh, I, I think it's kind of absurd to, to think that actually. Um, and if you can take kind of a simple experience, like, um, I don't know, seeing the sun, to, to, to see the sun and feel the warmth of that sun on the body requires, first of all, well, the input of the sun, it requires um, the body, which interprets those signals to have an embodied experience of warmth from that sun as well. And it requires all of our past experiences with particular suns in certain particular contexts and all our beliefs about it. And then it requires, of course, a very important organ, which is, is the brain as a kind of important um, um, link in the causal chain that gives, gives rise to an experience of things and, and objects and experiences and feelings. So I would say the brain is an important link in a, in a much richer enacted chain of events that gives rise to what most people think of as the mind. And now, as you say, there's something really important that's maybe not, in, that, that also needs to be included, which is that which is aware of all of those processes mm -hmm. taking place. Mm -hmm. And so how awareness fits also into this picture, whether that's reducible to the brain, I think these for me are, are beautiful questions for inquiry and beautiful questions for meditation. Um, but I, I, phenomenologically speaking, it's, it's quite clear through meditation practice that all things can be reduced to concepts. They, they do become concepts and what we face in the end is ineffable. It's wordless, it's nameless, it's, and, and you could call it unconditioned, but nothing can really be said about it. And so in that sense, what that, I, 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 um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't it beautiful? To, it's beautiful to say that. Uh, Duff Rijan talked about it as as divine ignorance, and and Zen talks about it as is the beauty of the um, don't know mind. 
That's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. where, you know, in a certain point, also, Ruben, I, I think because we're being um, really refined in understanding here, <clears throat> it depends on what level, <clears throat> excuse me, of knowing we're talking about. <clears throat> are we talking about conceptual, intellectual, traditional knowing, or are we talking about um, kind of Gnostic knowing, the knowing that occurs in the body, the knowing that is, in mm -hmm. fact, more embodied and, and I would argue truer dimensions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I'm I, I'm with you on that, but it's interesting to me, you know. Though uh, we I, I, in some exchanges with you, I've been sharing about some of my fascination with the work of Bernardo Castrop and and also Ben Williams, and, and there's um, some other scholars and researchers now talking about very interesting thing that you intimate in your paper about how it is that in the deepest spiritual experiences, um, they're they're actually inversely proportional to brain activity. In other words some of the most profound non-dual experiences take place, not with, with uh, highlighting brain activity, but with neuroda, cessation or diminution of, of brain activity. That in mm -hmm. itself is super interesting because then really, mm -hmm. I, I think it was Huxley that said, you know, the brain is the reducing valve. Well, when you mm -hmm. stop the reducing valve in both senses of, of reductionism, then in fact, perhaps um, as the brain goes offline, spirit comes online. And they're they're inversely proportional, and you seem to intimate that in your in your paper that the more active um, neurological and brain processes are, the more the reduction uh, and even really I would say shrink wrapping of reality mm -hmm. takes place. Um, mm -hmm. And so I find that also extraordinarily interesting. It, it gives some traction credibility to near death experiences, some of these outrageous proclamations when people are neurologically flatlined and they come back. Like the, in, in Buddhism, the super esoteric daylock tradition where people can voluntarily go into suspended hibernation for extended periods of time, they're clinically dead. And then they come back and report these outrageous um, kind of stories. And so I'm wondering again, how, how that lands with you. And uh, I also wanted to say one point of clarification. Um, I find it very interesting, <clears throat> even when we use, <clears throat> excuse me, even when we use the word mind, if in fact we are not slipping into a, um, a near enemy of the articulation of the, you know, the beauty of language, where it's, isn't it more accurate to actually talk about minds? Because even if you say mind, that seems to imply some kind of monolithic, um, like, in, like your paper even suggests, from many to one or to none. So isn't it actually even more accurate, not even to use the word minds, but to, you know, when you write now, M-I-D paren S, that it's not a single monolithic mind, it's actually in Buddhist terms, you know, dharmas, atoms of experience, that moment to moment to moment, a new mind comes into being, a new um, sense of reality is, is actually constructed. Um, and so even that, I think, can help us deconstruct our notion of mind itself, that it's not a singular, it's a plural. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there, there's so much to, to talk about there. Um, and and I think it's it's really actually um, something I struggled with as originally as a cognitive scientist. Um, that that's what I kind of did my PhD in before I really got into uh, the brain and um, and because we were studying this thing called the mind, but I, I I just couldn't get a clear answer from anybody on what this thing called the mind is that we're studying. All I would get is. Details, Ruben. Constructs. <laughs> Details, right? right. Uh, uh, uh. 
and and I, I tell you really to this day i don't think anybody's given a satisfying yeah. definition of mind and and even if you do come up with a satisfying definition still it's it's a net that we're casting over certain phenomenological phenomena and so what we're end end up with in my my opinion is um we end up with phenomenology we end up with certain experiential things which the brain and the body and um, the world and the universe is constructing in each each moment um, and those things are being constructed through the way that we now look at this through predictive mechanisms exactly. so this sort of segues into yes beautiful um, into in, yeah you mentioned this a uh, quote from from Huxley, the idea that the the brain is in a way a filter for experience i think predictive processing view of the brain is is somewhat similar but it, it also a little bit different in that it what it does it's it's it imparts the brain as a um, a much more creative engine than we thought of before. We sort of thought of it as a kind of passive information yes. processor. And that's beautifully reflected also in the, not beautifully actually, kind of depressingly reflected <laughs> in the way that we we conduct experiments is that we we pin people down. Like sometimes we <laughs> literally put their heads what? on these jacks to keep right. them in keep them in place. I've, and then, I've course, been in those jacks. I've been in those. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> As, as if we are just these information processes just taking the world passively. But that now right. the, uh, the best understanding of things is that the brain is very creative. It's it's a predictive engine. It's taken what it knows and it's yeah. actually yeah. constructing actively the present moment such that actually what we're experiencing, thinking, feeling, all of it is actually our own projection, yeah. not even actually derived from yeah. what's coming out from the inside outside um the only thing that we're potentially processing is the difference the errors in our predictions so as long as our projections are working from kind of the brain's evolutionary perspective it's getting things done it's all good and so it's also really uh, in our best interest to kind of fulfill our, our our projections constantly right because it's much easier that way and the brain right. do has doesn't have to take in new information it can just keep them um, uh, creating more and more uh, predictions in this way. So in that sense, um, now I don't know anymore how to link this back to what we were talking about. It's okay. Just oh, run with it. Just run with it. <laughs> I, want, I wanted to go here anyway. So your, your, your segue okay. is totally appropriate. Yeah. I, I guess there was one, one thing that was kind of lingering for me was what you, you, you mentioned this idea of um, through, through being really in the here and now, um, well, we deconstruct the present moment, but in a way, we also deconstruct um, death and and birth into this sort of um, deathless state. And and so there's a really simple way to understand this: that if if what we're experiencing in any moment is a kind of constrained hallucination yeah, based yeah, yeah. on our past experience, Just constrained and consensual, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, a constrained hallucination. That includes any constructs that we have about death and birth. Of course, these are something that in, in our sort of embodied lived experience, I, 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 don't, I also don't hold this view that we should kind of just um, deconstruct everything into oblivion. It's, it's, we, de de we, we get to see in a way that these things are constructs, but then, of course, we take them very seriously yeah. in, our, yeah. in our daily life. Um, but from the perspective of this sort of predictive creative engine of, of, the, of the body brain system, death and birth are also just ideas that at some point can be released. And, and those, are, those are, I imagine, 
whenever they're picked up in um, our early childhood, they're very profound and deep ideas that we take very, very seriously. They become very embodied constructs with strong uh, potentially fear responses, anxiety responses around things like, of course, death. So um, they, they become much more than what we think of just as loose concepts. They become deeply ingrained um, um, uh, ideas that are important for from the body's perspective. So fantastic! Oh my gosh, de deconstructing them is no no small feat. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah, uh, challenging emotionally, um, intellectually. And uh, there's a couple of things. Gosh, there's oh, this. This is so rich for me. I wanted to just um, share for our readers one of the, really, this is, this is just such a brilliant statement in your paper. And then I, I wanna go a little bit further into this because this is some really juicy stuff. So this is what you say here. I, I just was blown away by the, just the clarity of the statement. The brain is an organ that repeatedly regurgitates the world through predictions derived from the past. I, I mean, that's just so such a, an astoundingly clear statement. and. To me, several things come to mind here. Um, one is um, just overarchingly that this path, the near enemy, it's like you're saying, you're alluding to uh, one of the colossal shadow sides of postmodernism and radical relativism, right? Using transitioning now into, into philosoph philosophical thought that, that you, reality, it's not a sliding scale into um, no, uh, into nothing. You know, at a certain point, the, the via negativa. So in other words, one way to contextualize what we're talking about here in classical terms is the via negativa, you know, neti, neti, not this, not that. Um, the apophatic way in Christian theology that eventually we're deconstructing all the constructs, not into a nihilistic oblivion, just an oblivion of our, of our constructs. And therefore uh, what becomes really interesting then like what is left, again, the fourth moment, then you transition into the uh, cataphatic or the um, diapositiva. Like, so then what, what is left when everything is taken away? And so I wanna go there with you in just a second because otherwise it's like, okay, geez, like why bother? Why don't I just shoot myself, right? Well, no, don't shoot yourself, shoot your constructs, right? See through mm -hmm. them. So where this ties in for our listeners to dreams is that, and let's run with this for a second, um, Ruben, is that in fact, it, one of the really brilliant things about the dream is that um, bottom-up processing, we haven't used this languaging yet, but it's implied, it's in your paper, bottom-up processing, sensorial input um, in the dream state is negated, debated, I mean, zippo, right? And therefore the beauty mm. of the dream state is top-down processing dominates. Mm. In fact, you could really argue top-down processing is all there is. And so therefore dreams become with a proper lens and this view creates that proper lens profoundly revelatory. They, that's why the moniker for, for dream yoga is the measure of the path. It actually will reveal to you these, using scientific language, these top-down processing um, structures and apparatus. And, and therefore we can really use it to see, to, to, to better detect how it is that we run around. And this is why I wanna transition it in, into, a, into a second, the notion of non-contextual realism and how dreams can really work with this sort of thing. Um, but before I transition into that, again, just to pause for a second, that, that I'm wondering if you work with your dreams in this capacity, that when all um, the, the bottom-up processing is removed, it's really in a very real sense, it is mind only at that point. You get to see, in fact, 
as, as uh, the parental functions of the brain are removed, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex and the like, the executive, the pairs are out of the house, right? Mm -hmm. So then the kids play and you get to really see things that normally would be filtered out, either diluted by um, daytime experience or filtered out by so-called cognitive or uh, egoic intervention. So how, how have you worked or have you with the, the mind as it's revealed in the dream arena to explore some of these dimensions? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this domain. I did go through a um, long period, well, about a year where I was lucid dreaming quite heavily, but that was um, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, so I, I came into a period where, um, well, I became really curious about uh, lucid dreaming, and then they started to happen quite easily for me, quite spontaneously. Cool. And then because I was so curious about them, they kind of, I think, just kept on happening. Then I learned some techniques for it as well. This was sort of really at the beginning of my um, uh, meditation practice as well. That's when I started to kind of meditate more seriously and um, well, I'll get into these practices in general. Um, and well, let me share a funny experience with you because this is kind of where it, it, it culminated my um, my lucid dreaming um, journeys. So I, I would I would go into these lucid dreaming, and I I don't, I don't think I was using it in a in a wise way. I think I was kind of getting in there and just having fun with it and exploring what it was to be able to um, uh, interact with your own projections. How how deeply could we? Um, um gain some agency over those projections what could we learn through them i also tried some sort of um meditation techniques then but it was really i think um uh, a kind of immature practice at that time so um so i did find increasing stability in these lucid dreams and i found them very interesting um but i did find um that and then this is, I'm, I'm sure, something you, you teach as well, that it, it, it's sometimes hard to find stability. So part of the practice is that, I mean, I, I found that when I would get into these lucid dreams, if I got too excited, then I would kind of get, you know, booted out or something like that. So I, th this was kind of um, pre any um, inception stuff. So I, I was trying to figure out how, how can I stabilize this, this lucid dreaming space? Um, and so I, I kind of spontaneously, um, this is about 10 years ago, came up with this idea that, well, what if I, in this um, world of my projections, project a bed in my lucid dream, and I get in that bed and I go to sleep? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. So I, I did that. I, I projected myself a bed after I woke up in the lucid dream. I got in that bed and I went to sleep. Oh, wow. And then I would wake up again into another lucid dream. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you, I, um, I would find that then the, it, things became more stable. It was more solid. I felt that I could move around the space without getting um, kicked out of uh, oh, wow. the lucid dream. Wow. And so I began this um, experimentation with this where um, I would uh, then make another bed and go to sleep again and then do it again. And each time progressively, I found myself more stable um, in the lucid dreaming space and I could kind of move around there um, more easily. And so I, I did this, I, I'm not sure how many times I, right. where I pushed this to, but right. let's, let's, imagine, let's imagine that I did this 10 times in this right. dream. Then um, 
so I had this sort of classic way, you know, I, at this point, then I would explore the dream until I was um, tired of it. And so I had this technique for coming back out of the lucid dream, which was that I would um, project myself a big cliff, um, like a, a really big cliff. And then I would just run and, and jump off it. And then this sort of sensation of falling that I create yeah. for myself yeah. would wake me up. And that would be my way of kind of um, oh my gosh. waking back up in my bed. Which one? Anyway, so which one? Yeah. Which one? Which, would well, you like ping? Would you like? Would you like falling <laughs> off a cliff? Like you ping off of that, and then you fall yeah. off the one, and you keep falling until you those big bottom out. Was it like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, this was unexplored territory. So, well, you'll find out in a second what happened okay. here. So I now now I, I I projected myself this cliff, and um, I I ran and I jumped off, um, and I found that I just hit the floor and I bounced. I was falling, 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 just hit and then just bounced a little bit on the floor. <laughs> so the first time this happened, I was a little bit concerned. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is this was not meant to happen. This not this isn't what I this this doesn't usually happen. So I start to get a little bit kind of sweaty palms in my dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and so then I think, okay, I'm going to do this again. I get a bit bigger cliff um, and I, I run and I, I jump off this thing. And the same thing happens again. I hit the ground and I just bounce. And at this point, I start to really get um, anxious and yeah. worried. I was I like, okay, can, I, I've... Can I ask yeah, you why? Can I ask you why? What, what was bringing about that sense of anxiety? I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, well, well, the fear was that I had... Um, pushed it too far and now i was stuck in my own projection yeah exactly you know of course now, now i see this in all sorts of different ways but at the time that's exactly what i was experiencing i thought okay no um I, i'm stuck here in this dream um and so i went through this process a few times and i was i was starting to get really really yeah. worried um and then finally I, I decided okay this this is it i'm going to create the most dangerous looking cliff i can imagine I can possibly imagine it's going to be huge. It's going to be terrifying. And then I go and I, I jump off this thing. And um, um, as I'm falling, then I, I was really relieved to find myself awake in, in uh, ordinary life again. Like a dream. Oh, my yeah, God. it was it was it was quite a trip. Um, so for, for, this is this is sort of one of many lucid dreaming experiences I had during that period. Um, but what I came to think, and, and now from what I've heard you speak, speak about, and I, as I, I, I didn't know about dream yoga and these sorts of practices at that yeah. time, but what I concluded, and this is when I was about 19, um, was that what I was doing when I was going into these lucid dreams, indeed, just exactly as you said, I was exploring my own projection and then my sort of most extreme version actually of my ego who was fully in control of everything was actually out there playing so i found that it became a complete contradiction actually to the meditation practice which was to de-reify yeah. from this kind of process of constructing a um constructing the self and then creating pleasurable experiences or exploring or yeah, yeah. whatever it is so then i decided okay this this seems to actually go against my meditation practice. And then I, then I gave it up. Of course, now I'm learning that there's a whole way that you can use this uh, lucid dreaming space. And it's actually beginning to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it now. And now talking about it, we'll see what happens when I go to bed tonight. So. Oh, it's just so awesome. And, and also, again, in a revelatory sense, you know, one of the um, 
like second, third stages of dream yoga, each, each of the stages, by the way, are, are increasing steps towards the process of dereification. Or in Buddhist language, again, the nine stages are my kind of unfolding of the three classic stages in the text, which are just so pithy and the giant that it's, it, it, it just takes a, a, a siddha, a giant, you have to take these massive steps. I add a little water in, in a certain sense or mixing metaphors, I insert some baby steps and unfold this into nine stages of dream yoga, each of which is actually an exploration, another way to talk about, I haven't used this term yet, but when we're talking about deconstruction, fundamentally, we're talking about emptiness. We're talking about de-reification. And so each one of the nine stages is a progressively more refined exploration of the process of de-reification, i.e. they go deeper, deeper into emptiness, to reality. And so therefore, the reason I mentioned this movement is that now if you perhaps revisit that, Again, one of the really interesting things about dreams, the revelatory, the measure of the path, is they reveal these predictor processes. They reveal our habits, mm -hmm. they reveal our karma. And so therefore, by that, what I mean is that even now, perhaps when you fall with some practice, when you, when you fall, you actually won't even hit that ground because that ground itself is revelatory of your propensity for reification itself. You are the one that creates that sense of ground. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm immediately struck by your, I mean, your dream just blows me away. What, what Trungpa Rinpoche famously said, you probably heard this, the bad news is you're falling through space without a parachute. The good yeah. news is there is no ground. And that yeah. ground, that groundlessness is emptiness is in fact formless awareness. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's start to take this now um, into this arena of non-contextual realism. And, and with your permission, um, I want to read a couple statements from two, uh, I think, really seminal thinkers that you're probably familiar with. And if not, I'm sure you'd be delighted. One, of course, is Donald Hoffman, right? In his ITP theory. I want to read a couple things here um, because we, uh, listeners will, when we um, ping this back and forth, will realize how profound what Donald says, and then the second author I'll read in a second, how these, these statements apply to what we can explore in the dream. And so when I read this, um, you know, when the book first came out um, from Donald, I said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what the dreamscape has, has revealed for me. And so I'm gonna, with your permission, I'm gonna read a couple things. It's so similar to what you talk about in your paper. Um, I wanna send this your way. And then I wanna bring it back to this dream arena where we can explore this notion of non-contextual realism in the most, uh, I think, articulate way. And so to backpedal for just one second for our listeners. The reason I want to do this is because what we're, when we're exploring this material, especially within the kind of the Buddhist framework, um, in my estimation, Buddhism, the best, my favorite definition of Buddhism is it's not a belief system. Um, it's not really a philosophy or philosophy of mind. Um, I used to think it was a science of mind, but Evan Thompson helped me cut through that. Um, my favorite definition is Buddhism is a description of reality. Um, and so therefore what we're talking about here is in fact reality. And so what we're going to be challenging, uh, we've been pinging this term around a naive realism, the assumption that there's this pre-existing determinate world that we fall into and that therefore we are the victims of. And so this, mm -hmm. these teachings have tremendous applicability and practicality. They're really highly empowering teachings they show us that, um, how to take responsibility for our projections, for our hopes, our fears, our imputations, all of which can be revealed in the dream. And so by challenging 
the status of appearance on our way to reality, maybe we can, these are, these are empowering teachings. They, they give so much more, um, they distribute power back to its rightful source, which is us. Um, and therefore that revelation in itself is not always pleasant because it, as dreams will reveal, what is revealed through meditation and through the, the nocturnal meditations in particular are sometimes not things that we want to see, not things that ego um, wants to be aware of. So um, that is a preface. I wanna read a couple of these things and then go into this because you talk about this so beautifully in your paper. I open my eyes and construct a spoon. That icon now exists and I use it to wrangle payoffs. I close my eyes. My spoon for the moment ceases to exist because I cease to construct it. Something continues to exist when I look away, but whatever it is, it's not a spoon and not any object in space-time. For spoons, quarks, and stars, ITP, that's his, his term for interface theory of perception, agrees with the 18th century philosopher George Barclay that to be is to be perceived. And so I'm gonna briefly pause for just a second, see how this connects to dreams, and then I wanna go a little bit more with um, Donald and then let's discuss it, okay? So the that's reason I, I say this, and this is, how, this is what I have experimented with in dreams, um, Ruben, is that again, dreams are revelatory. We go into the dream, um, lucid or not lucid actually, even lucid dreams, we fall prey to this predictor process where we just feel there's a dreamer, that I am experiencing this dream, mm -hmm. and that in many people, they probably haven't thought about it. There's a kind of a pre-existing dreamscape that, that's there um, waiting you know, for you to experience. Well, with a little bit of examination in dream yoga, and you can even do this as a thought experiment by looking back from the waking state under the dream state, you can really assess the veracity of these proclamations that there's no pre-existing landscape in there. It's an immediate revelation of your projection. And so, for instance, like when Carlos Castaneda in his famous book, The Art of Dreaming, uses, you know, says, look at your hands. Well, there's the assumption that there is a hand to look at. And what happens that these practices reveal is, no, you generate the hand in the process of looking. There's no hand to look at in there. It's through your power of habituation that you create that hand. You create that landscape. And so what happens in the dream is exactly akin to what happens here. Like for instance, when I, when I turn around in my dream, I'm actually in that instant with the rapidity of, of you imputing meaning from my voice, instantly creating that reality. And we do it with such rapidity that we feel it's pre-existing, but it's just basically revelatory of the, of the lightning fast construction process. That when I turn my head in the dream, there isn't the pre-existing room that I'm turning into, as I'm turning, I'm enacting that environment. Mm -hmm. And again, that points out this idea of non-contextual realism that Donald's talking about and that you write about. That in fact, there's a world out there independent of me that, that doesn't, you know, doesn't have anything to do with my participation. Well, the world is highly participatory. We enact it, we co-create it moment to moment. So let me take this a little bit further. And sorry if I get excited because I love this stuff. <laughs> That's great. And it's like, this stuff so gets me excited. So. So here we go. So, uh, so as soon as you look away, the spoon ceases to exist. Something continues. We're going to come back to that because this is the via positiva. What is that, right? Something continues to exist, but it's not a spoon. It's not in space and time. 
The spoon is a data structure that you create when you interact with that something. Now, don't just, don't just think spoon, think everything. But there's another way to explain our consensus. We all construct our icons in similar ways. Again, this is this consensual reality, like a Neil Seth, right? Reality is consensual hallucination, consensual construct. As members of one species, we share an interface, which varies a bit from person to person. Whatever reality might be, when we interact with it, we all construct similar icons because we all have similar needs and similar methods for acquiring fitness payoffs. Indeed, there is no need to posit any physical object or a space-time that exists when no one observes. Space and time are simply the format of our interface. Objects are not pre-existing entities that force themselves upon our senses. They are solutions to the problem of reaping more payoffs than the competition. So here it is. This is an entirely new way about thinking about objects. We create them quickly as needed to solve fitness gathering problems. And then he goes into this whole Darwinian thing that we can talk about if you want. But to me, this stuff is so profound. It's so mind bending. And it is such an assault on the traditional way of viewing reality that, that really, again, the consequence of it is listeners are going, oh, geez, this is like, well, why are we talking about this? This is kind of cool armchair philosophizing. No, it's not. This is the basis of all our suffering. This is the basis of all our happiness and a kind of a transfer of power back to its rightful source, which is us. So I know that's a lot, but I think this stuff is so important and something again, that we as dreamers can explore, that we take as axiomatic. We go into the dream, all my body's there. No, it's not. If you, if you, you look down on it, you create it in the instant of looking. And then take that insight from the double delusion, extrapolate it into this and realize that what I see now is the wall behind, you know, the room behind me actually doesn't exist for me until I turn around at the speed of sight and actually enact and co-create that reality. So I know that's a lot, but that's just because I'm so jazzed about this topic. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of get the feeling that, um... You've expressed it so well, and I, th I think um, it it, it uh, resonates beautifully with indeed predictive processing, the way that we understand that um, this moment is being constructed. I think that's clear. Um, and so then I thought, well, it's also maybe nice then to pay some homage to the constructive also part of, of meditation. I mean, yes, this thing is our um, uh, embodied construction based on the past experience everything in a way then there's still this um sort of pragmatist in me and also this uh something we didn't get to touch on yet in the mm -hmm. paper which is of course then there's also this important thing of reconstructing the system the organism the sense of self our experience and our actions in a way that's yeah. that's wholesome yeah and compassionate and and yeah creates a happy and peaceful um, lives. So this is um, something I, uh, of, of course, is uh, deeply important. Um, and so in that vein, I thought also that's something nice to add to this, this sort of model 
let's say, is what happens under the hood when we're in a, even a profound state of non-doing. So let's, let's imagine that the organism, uh, ourselves even, is in a state of um, deep, deep and profound non-doing. Our predictions have settled down really deeply. But the way that we understand that, as you said, in order for us to turn our head and experience a present moment or, or to see, have a visual scene, a lot has to be happening sort of implicitly in the organism in order to prepare that scene for our minds for when we look there. So there's a lot happening um, before our phenomenological experience of separate things, self, attention, awareness, consciousness, all of this arises. A lot is happening already. So if we're in a profound state of phenomenological non-doing, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has stopped. You know, we're still going to, and, and maybe there might be some very rare exceptions to this, and, and, and we can even perhaps talk about that, but homeostatic processes, the processes that regulate our, our blood flow and our heartbeat and, and, these, and the, the temperature of our body, these things are ongoing. But in addition to that, ongoing processes within the, the, um, the brain are also probably still happening. So one um, um, kind of interesting model from Carl Friston about what's happening in this um, under the hood, even when we're, for example, in deep sleep, is that the brain continues to prune its models. Mm. It continues to mm. sharpen things. So I think there's a quote in one of his papers, and it's that it's, it's kind of like the artful removal of a sculpture from stone. Mm. So in a way, even when everything has stopped phenomenologically, and this could even give a kind of deep biological purpose to deep sleep or an important biological process, is that this is the opportunity for our models to be refined, mm. to become more parsimonious, to become clear, more balanced, mm. better descriptions of the pragmatic sort of interactive experience that we have day to day to, to allow us to be basically more effective um, uh, agents in the world. So even when we're in a phenomenal, phenomenological state of non-doing, I think there's perhaps still a lot going on in constructing mm. what then re-emerges mm. in a way that's um, uh, actually really uh, valuable. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to add that. Can I say something to real the quick? Narrative. Yes. This is please. so great. Let me let me ask you this, Ruben. Driven by what imperative? In other words, is it is it the is it the imperative for agency itself? So, in other words, what is um, what is the embrace of that pruning under under um, uh, how to say this? To to what extent? What what is the what is the agency that is in fact propelling that pruning? Because mm -hmm. it seems to imply that there's something being so like even subliminal to that. That pruning is somehow in the service of something. Like, why is it happening? Seems to be yeah. in this case that it's it's a pruning in the service of the self sense itself. Can you say that, or is that too much of a, a conjecture? Yeah, the self sense itself. Well, I can say from the predictive processing perspective. I mean, I think I think we're really on the edge of of scientific understanding here. So I can say what we might think is going on from predictive processing perspective, which is that the imperative of the system then is simply to reduce error to reduce prediction error right yeah. so 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 under this framework the idea is that all of our 
action, behavior, perception, um, and thought is all in the service of reducing error. So even when we're completely unconscious, the brain continues this imperative of testing its own predictions against yep. itself. So it just needs to keep on generating top-down predictions and comparing the, its, yep. its models against itself until it can find more parsimonious explanations. Yep. And so this is also um, an explanation of, of how insights can emerge. Yep. These sorts of completely, in a way, automatic and natural new insights and new ways of perceiving reality that can come from non-doing, um, which is, of course, something that's emphasized in Vipassana is the gaining of insight. But if you're in a state of, even in these very profound states of non-doing, the system is continuing to refine itself, it's still possible for new perspectives, new insights, new ways of looking at reality to naturally emerge mm. through this mm. automatic imperative of reducing um, yeah. prediction error or whatever it is. And now, what is it ultimately in service of? Um it depends how hard line people are in the predictive person camp. They might say it's it's really it's reducing prediction error all the way down. Or yeah. you might have someone who's yeah. more in the sort yeah. of evolutionary camp, and they say then it's it's in the service of adaptive action, yeah. Yeah. Um, or something like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So immediately comes to mind here. I want to ask you about this: Is this reduction of prediction error? Would it not um, be therefore um, kind of helpful for the meditative journey to in, um, put ourselves in situations where prediction errors are actually amplified. And by this, what I mean, again, because that can reveal these processes. It's like a little bit, two quotes came to mind. One is, again, the master of the one-liner, my main guy, Trungpa Rinpoche, where he says chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Is mm -hmm. in fact, could, it, could in fact that chaos be a heightening, a clash, a dissonance of prediction errors with the reality, right? Yeah. So that we can therefore see that creates a contrast medium that allows yeah. us to, to see these otherwise unconscious prediction processes taking place. Secondly is another one from Mingjia Rinpoche, this astoundingly beautiful book called In Love with the World, my, my favorite teacher these days, where he says of this journey where he went onto the streets of India for four years and almost mm. died. This amazing statement, he goes, I wanted to put myself in situations where I was unfamiliar to myself. Mm -hmm. What an amazing statement. In fact, so as I read that now, using this languaging as a way, in fact, to create new contrast mediums, unsettling, uncomfortable, not at all what the ego wants to see, because mm -hmm. you're throwing a colossal monkey wrench into these processes that make ego so comfortable. And so maybe what you're talking about is actually the philosophical neurological languaging for exactly these types of statements. The chaos mm -hmm. really should be regarded as extremely good news because it actually disrupts completely the, the, the prediction processing and therefore allows us to, to work with these errors, in fact, as a way to discover truth. Is that a fair yeah. way to look at that? I, I think it is. It's it's very fair, and um, I mean I'm in kind of two minds about this. I mean, first thing I wanted to say is that. Um, this is one way perhaps to think about the kind of initial suffering that people experience when you first start to meditate, because we're suddenly exposing ourselves to all of this inner interceptive 
input that has never been experienced before. So it's a profound induction of prediction error, which translates to, in the long term, uncertainty, entropy, you could say chaos, right? So there, there is a very, you're using the word chaos, but I think in the end, those two terms map onto things beautifully. So you could say that the, the brain is a chaos reduction reducing system. That's, that's it. So when we, <coughs> excuse me, first sit, there's an enormous induction of input that we haven't been exposed to or prediction error, or as you say, chaos. So it's a huge hit. And then over time, what can happen is that this prediction error becomes, gets explained away mm. and suddenly a kind of coherence arises. And this is what we might start to picture as that sort of messy ocean suddenly becoming kind of still and tranquil. And so, you, you know, this is me really kind of speculating now, but sure. what you could imagine that that sort of tranquility that arises is the explaining away of prediction error. And so in daily life, we're constantly kind of actually, you could say in a way, chasing the just the right amount of prediction error in order to keep us learning, in order yeah. to keep us surviving and keep us going. So we're also kind of addicted to prediction error in yeah, a way. Yeah. We're kind of addicted to this pursuit of improving our uh, models, but also in the long term, not just in the short term. We want to find the best models that keep us alive, right? So this yeah. is what keeps us driving and going yeah. out and, and, uh, and exploring things. So indeed, exposing ourselves to entropy, uncertainty, prediction error, chaos is one way to refine our models. Now, the, one, the reason that I'm in two minds about this is that I see so much uncertainty inherent in the world right now that we have so much prediction error to deal with as it is that in a way, I think that even the more valuable thing is for some people is to be able to find that inner place where this, this entropy is explained away so that the system can have these experiences or windows of silence where this prediction error is not constantly bombarding the system. I mean, if you think about just the changes in terms of technology, the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, the fact that we're relating to each other differently, we're working differently, everything that we've been doing has, is, is constantly being changed change is just happening at an exponential rate in the world. So our exposure to impermanence and a Nietzsche is, is at a level that it's never been before. Yeah. Yeah. So on some level, I think it's wonderful to expose ourselves to entropy when we yeah. have that inner centered stability, yeah. but that inner centered stability perhaps comes from those windows of silence yeah. where the system can be at peace within itself, where that prediction error is at least momentarily explained away. And indeed at the deepest level, when we just give up the habit of prediction itself, Altogether. because if we give up the habit of prediction, we also are not inducing prediction error and therefore we're not creating this habit of action and, and everything. Oh, Ruben, I can't tell you. That's just absolutely beautiful. You know, it reminds me actually what the Buddhas are the only ones that in fact are habit free, right? It's mm. only the Buddha that is um, prediction free, karma free, habit free. And so it's, it really is habits, predictions, it's turtles all the way down until you open up. And, and yeah. a couple other lines came to mind from Bruce Lipton, where he says, you know, crisis sparks evolution. Again, it's another mm -hmm. one of these mm -hmm. things. But yeah. what I wanted to say a couple of things here, again, to show or to point out to our listeners, like, why is this so important? Well, another reason this is so important is, as you were intimating, um, Ruben, that this points out that these evolutionary forces, but sometimes I playfully refer to as the forces of the dark side, 
that these are these unconscious, these massive unconscious processes, um, which Bruce and others say, what is it like 95% of, of what we do now is driven by these unconscious processes, largely, you know, throwing into this um, can of soup now are these predictive processes taking place. And so the reason this is so important is because on one level, exactly as you're saying, on one level, biological evolution is not on the side, it's not on our side is spiritual practitioners. Because biological evolution, as Bruce um, Lip, or, or as um, Donald Hoffman points out, evolution is not interested in truth. It's in, interested in functional fitness. It's interested mm -hmm. in, in bringing your genes into the next generation. And so if we understand that, and, and there's so many colossal implications here, we realize that when we're sitting in meditation, we have, and this is why I'm such a big fan of integral theory, Ruben, is we have so many massive forces of the dark side, these, these unconscious forces that are actually working against spiritual evolution. One of mm -hmm. which is when we go from spiritual, uh, what I understand as spiritual evolution is in fact, the deconstruction, the so-called progress from fully reified form, i.e. ego to formlessness, i.e. egolessness. Well, that is completely counter, again, against the whole stream of biological, our biological legacy. Everything is designed to protect form, including fear. So fear comes mm -hmm. into play here. So as they're trying to go from ego to egolessness, from fear to fearlessness, how is that interpreted through the, um, for the unconscious mind that generates this thing called ego? It's a death threat. And so we, mm -hmm. have this, we have this kind of bipolar relationship. Part of us really wants to wake up, but part of us doesn't want to die right? Part of us yeah. doesn't want to go through yeah. it. And so by understanding this, we can cut ourselves a little slack, give mm. ourselves a little break, have a sense of levity and humor, mm. and realizing that we have so many of these unconscious processes, habits, forces working really against us from this biological legacy. It's like I, I was watching the Olympics the other day, mm. and the baton, you know, we're handing the baton on, on this, mm. this uh, so-called race to evolution, wherever that's taking us. And right, this massive momentum that has been given to us by our biological structures are not necessarily conducive for our spiritual evolution. And by understanding that, we can relax, smile at the extraordinary sophistication of these forces and start mm -hmm. to bring them into the light of consciousness. Really, my, my friend uh, 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 Bob Thurman says, you know, fundamentally, the process, and many teachers say this is one way to look at enlightenment, is to is to basically bring all the unconscious processes into the light of consciousness, so that there is no such thing as the unconscious mind. There's only awareness. But you can see if, in fact, ninety to five percent of what we're doing is dictated by this this iceberg, then um, we have to cut ourselves a little bit of a, of a give ourselves a little break around this. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, and. And in a way, we can say that they're working against us. But on another way, we can also see that these are these are processes that are serving our survival, and it's it, they are this they are the habits that created all the beauty. Also, that we can we can see um, may, maybe not all the beauty, but at least some some beauty came out of also these habits. They are the ones that um, make this whole um, experience of being a human happen. So, in observing them, we can hold them kindly and. Um, with friendliness um, in our becoming aware of them, and and it's it's not always even the case that we need to get rid of them. In, in a, we need them, right? They are our. The, 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 I think are, the question. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they, they 
ultimately they should just serve us and rather than us serve them i think that's the it's the it's the, the transcend <laughs> it's the transcend but include narrative yeah we yeah. still need our fear we still need all these biological things but we need again integral approach we need to find the proper place and keep it in the place because otherwise they'll dominate they'll evolutionary processes then become devolutionary they actually hold us back and so mm -hmm. by understanding that so anyway I, I cut you off a little bit but um yeah if there's more you have to say about that otherwise i wanted to read another section from a very compelling thinker that is a, a little bit coming back to the non-contextual realism thing but again to me this is so central to what we're talking about here but i did interrupt you a little bit was there a little bit more you wanted to say about no, no, that's, okay. that's perfect. I, I don't want the interview. To, <laughs> I get so excited. I don't want the interview to go the other way where I'm, I'm sucking all the air out of the room, right? No, um, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so, so again, let me, let me share with your permission. Um, and then I still want to talk about psychedelics and things like that. If you have a second, uh -huh. but this true. is, if you don't know the work of Christopher Wallace, do you know his work? Are you familiar with him? Chris Wallace? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm going to turn you on to this guy. He's a dear yeah, friend, please. a brilliant scholar, Sanskritist. Um, I, I think one of the most sensitive thinkers on Nandu Shaiva Tantra, Kashmir Shaivism. Mm. Really clever. He's not just a, liter a, a classic translator, but he's a cultural translator where he brings mm. these amazing perennial truths into a kind of um, contemporary vocabulary. So I wanted to just read this for everybody because I find it so compelling. It's a, a paragraph or two. And then we can um, come back to this for just a second, because again, I think this is so key. Oh, and by the way, this the reason I'm mentioning this is this is also going to be a segue into um, what I was suggesting earlier. When we do all the deconstruction, when we do all the negation, the cutting, what's left? Mm -hmm. What's left? And so mm -hmm. now, so this is going to be the last comment I have about, okay, so um, we cut, 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 cut to what and so this is what chris is pointing to which i which i think then we can run with a little bit first we learn that there are no knowables apart from knowing check this against your own experience since it's easily verified have you ever been able to prove to yourself that things exist independently of your awareness of them have you ever tried if you can look at the situation clearly you'll soon realize that you've simply been conditioned to assume that things exist independently of your awareness of them, that there has never been any proof whatsoever that they do, and there never could be. Like most people, you take observer-independent reality on faith. But the apparent common sense of that assumption has now been deconstructed by the most advanced branch of science we have, quantum mechanics. It has demonstrated that the belief in observer-independent reality is nothing other than that, a belief. And one without any evidence whatsoever to support it. Semaraja reveals, Semaraja is the great Kashmir Shaivist master that he's running a commentary on. Um, he wrote this, this is by the way from a book called the Recognition, all my stickies on here from a book called The Recognition Sutras. Um, it's Chris's really wonderful commentary on 20 short sutras um, that he then runs with. So Temaraja is the author of this text that he's commenting on. Temaraja mm. reveals this truth in these words, quote, 
Whatever one is aware of in this world, its nature is nothing but that awareness, end quote. Another way of saying the same thing is, there is no reality to whatever you are aware of apart from your awareness of it. But wait a second, you say, if I experience a specific thing, let's say a tree, and then when I'm not there, my friend experiences the same thing and reports it to me, surely that proves its existence is independent of my awareness. No, it only demonstrates that perceivers are coordinated. They agree on the tangible aspects of reality because their awareness co-created that reality, giving rise to the illusion of objectivity. But perceivers are and must be coordinated simply because they are all instantiations of a single underlying perceiver. They are, they are all facets in a single jewel, as it were, all rays of the one light, end quote. Which of course, what he's saying is what? The one light of the light of awareness itself. So now we've bottomed out. We've bottomed out into no thingness, formlessness, formless awareness itself. Again, the wonderful result of the diminuendo that you articulate as you go from focused awareness to open monitoring to non-dual to what? Not nothing, but nothing. Empty formless awareness itself, which this tradition and the non-dual traditions as I've come to experience them and understand them, in fact, that that is what's left, is just formless awareness itself. And again, perfectly revealed in the medium of the dream. There's no objects in the dream. What is it that actually constitutes the appearances in the dream? It's the light of the mind itself. It's just mind. So um, I wonder how that lands with you. Um, let's 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 go with this because now we can transition into the apophatic or the cataphatic way, the via positiva. You know, now that we cut down to nothing, nothing, or you know, reduce to nothing, what is left? That and tat tvam asi, thou art that. What is that? Okay, so again, <laughs> it's a little bit long, but I just, because the stuff to me is so profound, it mm -hmm. so cuts to the nintig, to the heart essence of the whole bloody shebang. Mm -hmm. So now we've kind of come down to it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about it. Mm. The it, which is the hardest to talk about. <laughs> Complete, completely ineffable, right? How, what can you say about it? it indeed. Um... Yeah, I mean, coming from the perspective, I suppose, of, of what we've been saying about the, the creative process of the brain, the fact that it's constantly generating uh, predictions based on past experience. This is the kind of ancient message from contemplatives, both past and present, also the, the meditators that we work with now also in the laboratory, is that what is possibly left once one has stopped the habit of prediction is something you know ultimately that's simply without concepts but that has the characteristics perhaps that best is captured by the word awareness that which knows that which is aware of what is arising to the point that in in, in some experiences it may be that that is all that's left okay. at least momentarily and it is within it is the space within which then the objects of our experience including the self attention and all that we experience around us can then kind of freely reemerge both as the and and uh, i like this way of um phrasing awareness as both transcendent and imminent yes in 
experience. And I read this from um, Zoran Yosipovich. He's a kind of uh, he's a he's a researcher focusing on this reflexive non-dual awareness. So this this is perhaps what remains. Now I I, I want to bring in something because I'm also curious of your opinion here. And this is something that is a kind of interesting living inquiry for me as well. Um, the question of the liberating aspect of discovery, of these kinds of discoveries. And in the same vein, this state called Niroda Samapati or cessation. Yeah. yeah. So this is very interesting because there is a state described in classical um, Buddhism, and um, I'm yep. working with some meditators now who, who can work with this state, known as cessation or Niroda yep. Samapati, which is the absence of even consciousness and awareness. It is the full absence of experience, full stop, you know, yep. nothing, yep. no time passing. They can go out for days at a time, come back, and it's as if no time has passed, no experience has happened, nothing. Yep. Yep. And then in the emergence, which is why they uh, train this state, they see the construction of yep. the predictive processing hierarchy, which maps very well into how we know the brain constructs experience. So there's something also to be said, um, and I, I, it's something I kind of inquire about and watch in myself, is the reification of awareness also yep. as a kind of, um, as a construct. And yet there is something profoundly unique also about awareness, the fact that it is imminent and transcendent in all experience. And yet there are also states where there is apparently an absence of awareness. So this raises a very interesting kind of, um, I don't know, in inquiry for me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I'm just a couple of notes here. So I don't forget a couple of things. Um, so yes, uh, boy, this is, uh, again, this, oh, you're just speaking my language here. Um, I would argue that awareness of absence is not absence of awareness. Um, let me say that again. Awareness of absence is not absence of awareness. What, what I would argue that takes place in, in these kind of norodas of sampati, uh, and it's very interesting how, how many of these terms of negation, um, terms of spiritual endearment, right, <laughs> are, are negations, right? Uh, nirvana, niroda, nirvikalpa, nirguna. They're all mm -hmm. just cutting, dis covering, cutting, 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 doing this necessary, sometimes painful um, spiritual surgery until what I would argue um, with a, the kind of inherent question is it's not just, it, it's only consciousness that is um, fundamentally negated. And this is where, uh, remember in the, in the conversation that, that I presented a couple of weeks ago, I made, I think this critically important distinction between consciousness and awareness, mm -hmm. Salmon Rigpa. Um, and therefore, as I said, that that uh, consciousness and non-duality are in fact mutually exclusive by definition. That in, in the terminology as I've come to understand it, um, consciousness is pejorative. Yeah, it's, it's literally in Sanskrit, right? Vijnana, Gnana, G-N-A-N-A is non-dual um, awareness, wisdom. Consciousness, you put the prefix V-I in front of it that fractures it. So what we know as consciousness by definition is always dualistic. We're always conscious of something. And so therefore consciousness itself is not irreducible. Consciousness can be deconstructed, 
to reveal awareness. And so what I would be, be very interesting to talk to these people because my what first comes to mind, and, and I'd have to really chat with them a little bit, is it's a little bit akin to what happens in, in deep uh, Dharmakaya samadhis um, and also what happens at, uh, um, in death is that fundamentally the display is completely flatlined. That's what takes place. And so when the, when the display is completely reduced to ground zero, that is in fact when we go unconscious. But there are degrees, depending on one's level of awareness, of tacit awareness that never turn off, right? And this, in fact, is I, I can't remember if I mentioned this in our conversation with the cons group, Ruben, is um, what I believe the great contribution of the wisdom traditions is it replaces, you know, this kind of clunky Western binary relationship to, to mind consciousness is either on, off, yes, no, black, white, dead or alive, mm. with a very sophisticated dimmer. And in fact, that's what these practices you're talking about do. They're dimming consciousness till eventually consciousness turns off and then what's left is formless awareness itself which is the very fabric and matrix of reality that does ne that never turns off and so therefore when you were setting it, saying at the outset um you know the consciousness being the matrix and um, this really subtle subtle distinction of how it is that we want to fundamentally go even beyond um consciousness or, or consciousness of something Mm -hmm. or in, in the deeper sense, awareness of something to awareness as something. So it's no longer that binary, even that that subtle, the fruition, this is what separates open monitoring from non-dual awareness. The very highest fruition of, of open monitoring is this complete equanimous relationship awareness of. It's still non-dual because you have that of in there. It's still, there's still consciousness at play. But what makes the non-dual traditions non-dual, it's no longer awareness of, it's awareness as. And then you enter into complete utter ineffability because the minute we start talking about it as we are now, you're already screwed because you, you, you know, you're really, you're, you're using dualistic mediums, thing thinking to approach things that are completely non-dualistic and utterly um, transcend the notion of thought altogether. But that's the challenge you know, that, we, that we have as practitioners. That's also yeah. where what we're doing here only goes so far. And then eventually, as contemplatives, we take the leap because it's mm -hmm. only in direct experience that we can have the type of knowledge that we're talking about here. But that's what comes to mind mm -hmm. based on what you said. And reflexive awareness, you know, I mean, that, that is it. You know, reflexive awareness. And again, you can see this really beautifully in the dream. This is such a profound insight of dream yoga is, in fact, the discovery of this this, this reflexive awareness that whatever arises is always already under any circumstance, always aware of itself. That's all there is. And it's, it's really, that's the so-called bottomless bottom line to me. That's where all this stuff fundamentally kind of um, ends up. And that's really where it just starts, right? It's not the end, it's just the beginning. <laughs> so anyway, that's what comes to mind, my friend. So yeah, I'm curious it's, it's it's really beautifully said, and actually, I, I I really enjoy listening to you talk about these things. When I when I heard you speak at cons recently about the nature of awareness, reflexive awareness, the distinction between consciousness and awareness, I really felt that these were some of the most lucid descriptions that I've I've heard. It was extremely inspiring. So at, at this moment, I, I don't think I have anything to to add to what you just described. So so just thank you for that. Well, I'm humbled. I'm humbled that you would say that. So. So uh, one last thing about the construction thing, and then I want to turn briefly, I don't want to take too much of your day. I, I could talk to you, my friend, the, the entire day. 
But I do want to say something. I do want to say something about what you said here, which is beautiful. You said something really. Again, there's so many pearls you're throwing out here that I'm I'm just grabbing a couple of them to riff a little bit on. One is that it's not just about deconstruction. You talked about wholesome constructs, and what I want to say here, just ever so briefly, is that again, is that the genius of the Buddhist tradition, in my estimation, why I drink this Kool-Aid, is their incredible array of skillful means. You know that that you could say half the path. This is my languaging, is in fact this kind of um, arc towards no thingness, towards emptiness, dharmakaya. But that in and of itself is not it. And that's why um, there's really some really colossal new age um, spiritual traps, enemies. If you think that utter cessation is it, no, no, no. It's the cessation of ignorance, the cessation of habituation, the cessation of these predictive processing. That needs to all be negated. But then again, to put an exclamation point on like, now what? Do you just hang out in these high states of absorption? Well, as you know, the Buddha, through his Vipassana meditation, said, no, that's not quite it. In fact, that's why he transcended the Brahmanical teachers and teachings that, you know, the ultimate fruition of meditation in his era was, in fact, these samadhi absorption states. Um, Mm -hmm. And he realized close, but no cigar. And so then the so-called second half, and again, my languaging, are, in fact, what in Buddhist language is, uh, uh, Tantra is called the generation stage practices, where then after you deconstruct the, the point, you know, that's ultimate liberation for self which is realizing there isn't one. Isn't that beautiful? The ultimate benefit of self is realizing there isn't one. Well, then what do you do with that? Then you form it volitionally, voluntarily. Instead of out of karmic, um, you know, habitually driven, impulsive ignorance, embodying ignorance um, uh, involuntarily, then the journey becomes one voluntary embodiment, voluntary incarnation, Voluntary form, lucid, this is ultimate lucidity, where you bring that awareness, that no-thingness awareness, and then what do you do, Ruben? You voluntarily form your thoughts, you form your body, you form your mind in the service of love and compassion for the benefit of all sentient beings. And so, therefore, this is super important, because otherwise, like, what's the point? And, and, and again, how relevant is our spirituality in this day and age if we can, in fact, not take these insights and apply them to a world that's on fire? Yeah, it's groovy if we chill out. That's fine for us. But what happens to the rest of the world is inflamed. And so Mm -hmm. therefore, then we take this deconstructed um, process. Now we form it voluntarily. Exactly what you can do in dream yoga, where Mm -hmm. you arise in all these forms as a deity or whatever is a representation of that. Exactly what you do in bhartha yoga. You voluntarily take rebirth, moment to moment, day to day, life to life, for the service and benefit of others. So I throw this into the mix again to show how what we're talking about here is not philosophical, metaphysical mumbo or even scientific mumbo jumbo. This has tremendous applicability to benefit the world and to actually get us out of this chain of involuntary cosmic recycling that's been going on from beginningless time, where now we can wake up to the process, bring these processes into the light of consciousness and continue to now, now it becomes lila. Now it becomes Rolpa. Mm. Now it becomes the play because we're no longer being buffeted around by these predictive processes and everything else that's in this iceberg of the unconscious mind. So I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that, that it's not just all about cutting, cutting, cutting. At a certain point, you do. You, you, you enter the action. You come back into form. But now you do so habit-free, right? 
prediction free um, and really as a representative and a servant of reality, not a servant mm -hmm. of the ego. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. I get carried away. Uh, no, it's, you're, you're, it's you're just fantastic. so inspiring uh, me. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you've you've said it beautifully, and I'm really glad that you brought this um, uh, into the conversation because, as you say, I do think the the deconstruction is is half of the process, and 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 prediction, you know, once it's seen, perhaps awareness can become more of an agent of its own predictions because the predictions remain on some level in order to to sustain the body and sustain relationship and and allow us to act in the world. So indeed, we become then um, in, instead of, yeah, you could say unconscious um, predictors to conscious uh, predictors of our experience and of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, that's the empowering part. And that's also the, the beautiful part of that yeah. you in a way get to have your cake and uh, eat it too. Um, <laughs> you get to be free of the prediction and yet free to predict. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the ideal scenario. <laughs> that's fantastically said. And, and so as we start to slowly write this down, I can't tell you how many questions I'm getting these days, Ruben, about um, the place of uh, uh, hallucinogens and theogens and the mm. like. And, and I know you've done mm. some work on this. Um, so talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the role of these agents, which, you know, they're getting a, a lot of airtime these days, I think rightly so. Um, uh, your experience, if you feel comfortable about, about that, sharing that, uh, I'm in a public format, um, and, and then your theoretical, so-called theoretical, um, work with this, because I think this is, mm. this is a, a, a wonderful introduction of methods that I think if they're held in the, in a proper light can really be of some benefit to us these days. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a, a really big one. Um, okay. Let's run with so it. For I, just a <laughs> yeah, let's let's see. So, I, also in the interest of time, I'm going to, I think, just say what I believe about um, what these uh, substance, substances are doing um, to the mind and how they relate to contemplative practice. Um, but I'm going to, in a way, have to speak about it rather heuristically, yeah. um, in a kind of way that, if I had time, I would unpack in a much in much more detail. Okay, fair enough. Um, but actually, in the original version of this paper, the kind of preprint version before we mm. published it, um, I actually had a whole section on um, psychedelics versus meditation, and uh, I, I went into specifically Ooh, the difference between. Um, deconstruction of the self and selfless states and ego dissolution as induced by psychedelics versus mm. that which we mm. work or what these contemplative traditions um, perhaps work towards. Um, so I, I might just start there because I get the feeling that this is in a way what a lot of people are interested in, especially perhaps your listeners, is in using um, these kinds of plant medicines or other hallucinogens, psychedelics, mind manifesting. Um, substances is to help progress the spiritual path, help gain insight into the mind and how things how things work. So there's one very interesting theory from the predictive processing perspective about how psychedelics work, um, and it's it's guaranteed to be an oversimplification, but it gives us some again heuristic understanding about what might be going on, and it to some extent. I think is consistent with people's phenomenology and I think also my own. 
So what happens when you take a psychedelic, it has an effect on certain receptors, the 5-HT2A receptors usually, or predominantly. And these are kind of found in their strongest density at the higher levels of the predictive processing mm -hmm. hierarchy. So these are the constructs that really constrain the lower level input. That's what keeps things in order. That's the self model and so on. That's what kind of really do the filtering work of what we end up experiencing. Now, what, what we think might be going on, and there's some direct neural evidence of this, is that psychedelics are inducing entropy in the system. Mm -hmm. It's kind of directly exposing the system to chaos. The uncertainty that you said is, is useful mm -hmm. to expose ourselves to under certain conditions mm -hmm. with, with the caveats that I mentioned before of a, what, what is already a very uncertain world. But so what these psychedelics may be doing is providing a window where the mind steps into a state of kind of broad scale chaos or entropy, particularly at these higher um, levels of constraining models so that the, the bottom up sort of input starts to dominate our phenomenology and is not constrained by our usual high level expectations from the past. So what this means is an, enormal, an enormous amount of potential it's just potential. I mean, you, you've just unconstrained your usual way of organizing reality. So anything can happen. This means it's, it's, it's kind of neutral in my view. It's neutral in the sense that you've just let go of your existing models, but where it goes from there is so enormously dependent on your expectations, enormously dependent on your set and setting, mm -hmm. these kinds of things. You know, I, I am, I'm really confident that if you take psychedelics in one particular kind of religious setting, you're going to have very different experiences than if you take it, for example, in a secular setting. And I think you're going to come out with different worldviews, different beliefs. And it's going to be entirely different if you also take meditation into this, the context of these substances. So it's a very interesting um, thing that we're, we're playing with there. Um, so first thing I would say is that it's raw potential. And that potential can go in, in many different directions. And we know that it's, it's, it's not harm-free. I, I really, yeah. I, I'm quite, um, yeah. quite strong on that, that it's very, it's, it's a potential that can go in many different directions. Yeah. And if it's done wisely, then it can, it can be of service, just like anything can on some level. And as for now, I just want to say one thing about the kind of, mystical states, the states of ego dissolution that arise um, on psychedelics. And this is kind of my, my opinion, you could say. But my sense is both from reading these descriptions, also from my own experiences um, with them, is that they are still kind of profound, very interesting, also potentially life-changing, but constructed states of experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So often my senses, when I read these um, experiences, which I don't, I'm not downplaying their importance of, let's say, these sorts of uni unity experience of becoming one with one's environment, these kinds of things, that makes perfect sense from the perspective that our usual models have become blurred. Our predictions are not assigned as much confidence as they usually are, and they're changing the, the, the way that they're, they're manifesting because they're just not, um, uh, they don't have the control that they usually do. So then it's possible to 
experience yourself become a plant, for example. It's possible to feel yourself completely merged with the environment. It's possible to see time and space warp in all sorts of ways. And it's possible to enter higher states of consciousness also, which what exactly that is, I don't know, but they are very interesting. But from my own experience and from what I read from these experiences, they don't seem to map very well onto, for example, what we're talking about as non-dual states of awareness, absence of the kind of co constructed contents of experience. Most often from what, I've, from, from what I've seen and experienced, but that is not to say, and this is kind of the frontier and a very exciting frontier is the combination of of, for example, Buddhist meditation practices, deconstructive practices, focused practices in concert with something that relaxes our models temporarily. Now, if you combine these two things, maybe you're, you're, you've got something of a new tool that um, can kind of expedite this process. But I, I also still think that there's so many, so much that we don't know yet about how these things, these substances work. Also, especially on the developing brain, people who are new to practice, at what phase in life should we, we be using these? At what phase of meditation practice are these uh, 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 useful substances to be using? These are all um, really open questions. Really open questions. Um, but I'm. I'm excited about this marriage of of um of of psychedelics and plant medicines as well as the 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 profound um insights from eastern traditions and then the profound rigor um of empirical science if we combine these things i think there's there's a there's a frontier here that is um yeah potentially revolutionary yeah yeah, what a what a fantastic, elegant summation of this. Um, I, and by the way, I would love to read the draft of what you didn't publish. Um, so if you sure. feel comfortable, oh my gosh, I would love to read that. But a couple things come to mind, one of which is a little bit playful. Um, again, playing with the word LSD is acid. That it's it's really uh, ego dissolution. You know, it's it's kind of mm -hmm. dissolving, right? Putting into solution in both senses of that, right? Solving and also dissolving, right? Mm -hmm. the, the issue of uh, reification. And um, okay, so a couple of things here, Ruben. Um, one thing that I wanted to say, again, I think this is, a, it, may, it may seem somewhat, um, I wouldn't say petty, but I do think it's important, this comment that you, you entered, uh, you talked about entering higher states of consciousness, so-called altered states, well, I, I would, I, I would, I would, I would counter that, um, and, and by saying that you're actually not entering a higher state of consciousness or an altered state, you're entering, in a certain sense, a lower state of consciousness. Um, when, when these experiences, and I've, I've, I've tried them twice, you know, decades ago, actually, I found them profoundly interesting, and I realized that in a very real way, they weren't um, kind of rocketing me into something, they were actually allowing me to descend into something. And so I think that's a somewhat important distinction that, at least from my experience, these are not higher states, they're lower states, they're more real. In other words, kind of like what you're talking about, waking down into the fabric, not trying to get up and out. And also along these lines, Ruben, is, is this notion that um, these so-called altered states of consciousness are in fact not altered, right? This is the altered state. 
that I what I believe these these uh, situations point out are glimpses of the actual natural state, glimpses of what is actually true. Uh, this no longer appears to be the altered state simply because it's been going on for so long. We we take this to be the default state, um, but this is in fact the construct. This is the altered state. This mm -hmm. is um, in Tibetan the Nyam. It's just been going on for so long we don't see it as such. And so when we do these, take these agents, they in fact dissolve, they acidify, they liquefy, they allow us to drop through, back down. This is actually important because Otherwise, what we do is we become state junkies. We're looking for something other, something high, when really what we're looking for is a low, um, ordinary, as I mentioned during the Khan's conversation, right? That, like Suzuki Roshi said, incredible statement, you know? Enlightenment was my, enlightenment was my greatest disappointment, right? <laughs> it was my ultimate letdown. It's an ultimate letdown into reality. So the enlightened state is not an upper, it's a downer. It's a downer for the ego. And so if we understand this again, okay, well, this is this is interesting. Like, why does it matter? Well, it has colossal implications because one of the reasons we miss it, right? I often say we're looking for Hollywood when it's more like Oklahoma. I love Oklahoma. Don't get me wrong. It's so ordinary that we keep missing it. We keep looking for the altered state when actually it's the, it's the inherent ordinariness. In Tibetan, it's actually called ordinary mind. So I think this is important because otherwise what happens is we become addicted to these highs, we become state junkies, when fundamentally what we need to really do is just relax, open, the die, dissolve, and it, we fundamentally make this radical discovery, oh my goodness, it's been here all along 24-7, there's nothing but this, nothing but that, ta-ta-ta, dharma-ta, suchness. I'm, I'm literally looking for it prevents me from seeing it. Um, so I wanted to throw that into the mix. And I have a question for you. Why does, in fact, meditation create a certain setting or a context that is, is in fact, more conducive or more, um, I guess that's my projection. I, I would think it's more conducive. But what is it in your experience, Ruben, that creates the meditative set and setting um, different from the other ones. Obviously, I think that's somewhat inherent to a lot of what we've been talking about, but if you could maybe just pull an exclamation point on that, that would be great. Um, do you mean now in the still in the context of uh, psychedelics or do yes, you mean? Yes, exactly, exactly, yep. Okay. I also wanted to just pin this this point about the ordinariness because I, I, I love that that quote of, and, and also your way of describing it as a, as a waking down. I think this is fantastic. And, and I actually... The, the tradition I've been the part of the longest is uh, known as Ordinary Mind Zen. There you go. And so yeah. uh, it's something that resonates with me. Um, and so your question is, how does the meditative um, uh, approach or um, set in the mind, how might that be conducive for um, uh, using these kinds of uh, substances? Yes. Um, well, it kind of speaks to what you were saying. You, you said that there's this, there's this potential that this, what we're experiencing now is kind of the construction, right? That this is in a way the hallucination. And what we're coming to is a, is a discovery without that, um, those predictive processes in place. That, I have to, I, let me say that again. That is so brilliant. This is the hallucination, yeah, not yeah. the hallucinogenic. 
We've yeah. taken we've taken a different type of hallucinogenic that we're not even aware of. So uh, that is anyway. I had to throw that in. That is beautiful. Yeah. This is the hallucination. So sorry. Yeah. And and uh, indeed, so I, I I really like that. But I can also from what I've um, uh, observed both in myself but also other people is that the potential of these substances is so vast. It's it, it's it's not. It's very rare in my experience that the mind inclines towards less hallucination so it's 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 not that just that you take one of these substances and then the mind begins to incline towards less prediction yeah, yeah. no in fact it has this new input and so it inclines towards more and more excited hyper uh predictive processing all kinds of new insights all kinds of new discoveries all kinds of shifts in perspective the bistable image of our mind starts to shift into all kinds of multi-dimensional um uh, kind of fractally realities yeah. but it very rarely um, naturally without a meditative mindset without some practice inclines towards deconstruction towards relaxing opening forgetting releasing deepening yeah right yeah. Yeah. so this is why the psychedelic becomes a potential um that if it's combined with this mindset of inclining towards letting go of predictions then it can perhaps speed things up actually yeah and um, and, and under certain conditions with yeah. really um people who are yeah. um yeah. you know that this is right for them um but i, I i've I don't think it necessarily very automatically or naturally inclines in that direction. And my experience also was that over the years, the insights that might arise um, through taking these kinds of substances, they can change because the, if there, there's this meta insight to be discovered, I think, from something like psychedelics, which is that your predict our predictive processes are extremely malleable mm. our perception of the present moment and of reality and our worldviews are extremely plastic and this is the sort of um uh deeper discovery i think that these things can give and provide so yeah just uh, really probably the most articulate um cautious endorsement of these agents i've seen i i wanted to for our listeners to contextualize this this is my languaging but I, I thought a lot about this topic. And if, by the way, I want to recommend a book, if you, I'm mean, sure you probably read Michael Pollan's book, mm. How to Change Your Mind. The other one that, that you may not have read that I highly recommend, Ruben, is by my friend James Kingland. Um, Am I Dreaming? Do you know this book? Uh, no. Yeah, the new, the new Science of Consciousness and How Altered States Reboot the Brain. He's a brilliant mm. writer. It's a, really, it's a fun read. It's a good read. But I wanted to, to I thought a lot about this, um, and I'm thinking more about it. And one of the ways, I wouldn't say this is a rationalization, but this is the way I'm working with these agents a little bit now is, is actually, if we're very cautious, we can see them as a, as a subtle form of the engagement of Tantra. And by that, what I mean is in Tantra, body is as important as mind. And um, again, in this kind of bi-directional way, right? Either top down or bottom up, we can work either way. Whether we know it or not, we're working in bi-directional ways all the time. Our, our meditation is working with subtle in unconscious processes, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things about things like uh, the nocturnal meditations is we actually engage more the the, in this case, bottom up, a little bit different from what we were talking about earlier, same word, but different um, signified, where now we can work with, with um, uh, these processes using the medium of the dream, you know, working with unconscious processes to ping lucidity 
from the unconscious mind into the conscious mind. So even, even that process becomes bidirectional. Therefore, lucid living uh, leads, leads to lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. And again, it's not just bidirectional, it's tridirectional. They both then lead to lucid dying. But that's a different, slightly different topic. I wanted to come back to the way Tantra works here is that body is as important as mind. And when working with, this is real classic neurophenomenology, right? Now we're working with the neural correlates of, of, of consciousness that are most, in fact, not causative, but correlative to these states. Why not engage them in this way? Why not use this subtle form of body, i.e. the neurochemistry, as a way to bring about these kind of pointing out transmissions? But then, of course, the big question is, they do point out state dimensions. They're not traits. So then the question is, um, like, what do you do with that, right? Do you continue to pop these states? No, no. Then you take these pointing out transmissions, and then you take it to the mat. You take it to the cushion. You, you transform the state into the trait, not by taking more of these agents, but allowing them, in fact, to point out that, hey, this is an organic process. I, I, these, these, I, I can actually engage in this, stabilize this to the more organic green approach of working with the mind through meditation. And so, um, oh, Ruben, I mean, really, I, I'm getting selfish now. I, I could hog you for the whole day. Um, I, this has been such a delight. I, I, as we start to close this out, if there are any final comments about the, the uh, hallucinogen thing, feel free to run with that. But I want to close by offering you the opportunity to talk to our audience, how they can support you, how can they learn more about you, what are you currently working on so that we can anticipate and look forward to your, your future work? Because you are such a brilliant shining light in this world that I, for one, will be eagerly awaiting your very next publication. So share with us a little bit what you're doing, how we can support you from our side. Thanks, Andrew. This has been such a wonderful conversation, really. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a scientist and at the moment I'm, I'm continuing my research, but you can find out about what I'm doing at, the, at my website. It's just rubenmaconan.com. So if you Google my name and meditation or Amsterdam, it's easy to find me. The only social media I use is, is Twitter. So you can engage me there. At least there I share some of the, the new works that, we're, that I'm doing. But um, I, I'm also hoping that uh, in the coming months or year, there'll be some, some more... Um, uh, yeah, readable things for people that are not just scientific, but also something that um, is a bit more digestible in these topics and also hopefully some poetry. So um, for sure, I'm, I'm happy to engage with any of your listeners if they're happy to follow me. So yeah, if we had the, the time, I mean, for, for maybe we'll post one of your poems with your permission as a little add on to, to our writing of your work, because your poetry is really exquisite, my friend. Um, and so any other any other final comments or, or uh, anything else come to mind from your end before we close it up for this time? I'm sure we'll be doing this again. I can't wait to bring you back on. Yeah, I, I would love to come back. And, and as I'm thinking, there's all, all these little thoughts bubbling up that I'd like oh to gosh, so grab much. onto and run with that I fear that there'll be a, a rabbit hole that we should save. So I'll, um, right. I think I'm really happy with this conversation and I'm energized by it and I, I gleaned a lot of insight from it. And um, I'll be so happy to speak with you again, Andrew, and um, yeah. thank you for this uh, conversation. Well, uh, likewise, you've been really, it's been a total delight. It's, it's such a treat to meet such a kindred spirit, um, really one of the great honors. And so thank you, my dear friend, for the work you do, the, the presence that you are, the shine that you bring to this world. We so need people like you in this day and age. And again, I just, I simply um, can't wait to read your upcoming work. It's really a delight. So until next time, my friend, 
all the best to you. Stay lucid, and let's do this again. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us, and a special thanks, of course, to Ruben for sharing his remarkable research and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. It's a lot happening these days. See you next time, and until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>